One of the most formative books for me as I've been walking with Jesus is a book by the author um, J.I. Packer and the title is Knowing God. So I first read this book whenever I was in college. I was actually, it, I started reading it on a, the way to our family vacation to Puerto Rico. <laughs> so I can actually remember like where I was at as I was reading this book. And I just remember being on this flight. I just first time I'd like flown over a ocean before and I was just like one scared but then two was like my mind was just kind of blown by what I was reading have you ever had a book that as you're just kind of wrestling with the truths of it like your mind just kind of you feel it explode inside your head well that's what was going on for me and so as I was reading this book um, there's two chapters that have really stuck with me they're towards the end of the book and here's the two titles of it the first one is the heart of the gospel and then the second one which was right after it was called sons of God And so the heart of the gospel, what J.I. Packer is really unpacking here, is this idea of justification, that justice was served for our sins. Instead of it being served against you, for those that have faith in Jesus, it was put on Jesus' shoulders. He bore the weight of the penalty of our sins. So we, justice has been served, which means we can have a right relationship with God. And he strategically placed the next chapter, Sons of God, right after the heart of the gospel, and here's why. He says, the idea of sonship or adoption is the apex or the climax of what the gospel means for us personally. Now, you would imagine, like, he try to put this in whenever he's talking about the heart of the gospel, but what he tries to do is he tries to take two different analogies of who God is so that he can unpack just how beautiful the truth of the gospel is for our life. So in that idea of the heart of the gospel, he's speaking more of God as a judge, right? So we have been made right because justice has been served. God is judge. He's laid forth the justice that our sins deserve on Jesus' shoulders so that we can have right relationship. The, the debt has been wiped clean. But what you don't get there. Whenever you think about God as judge, I mean, how many of you have like a really close, personal, intimate relationship with a judge? Nobody. If No hands raised right now. That's not what the height of the gospel is for us. What the height is, is that we have close, intimate affection, which is what we get in the idea of sonship. And the, the passage that he tries to use in that very chapter that he unpacks this idea of sonship for us is the passage that we're looking at tonight. He starts with Galatians 3.26, which is what Rachel started with this. Here's what it says. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. And so what I want to do is what I experienced on that plane to Puerto Rico. And I just want to revel in the truth of us being the children of God tonight. Over the course of like this whole entire sermon, I just want us to like revel in what it means that we get to be the children of God. It's a beautiful, it's the height of the truth of the gospel for us in our relationship with God that we are called his children. And so here's how I want to do that, all right? There's two ways that I want us to unpack this tonight as we're looking at our passage. The first one is I want us to look at how our passage helps us understand that we are God's children by looking at how we became God's children. We see that in verses 
uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And then after that, we're going to come back to chapter 3. And then we're going to discuss how we became family. How we became children. And then how we became family. And through all of this, we're just going to revel in the idea that we get to be the children of God. And then the way that we'll end is I believe there's two implications. There's like two invitations that God is bringing to us tonight for us to live in this reality. And then we'll close, all right? So we're going to start first with how we become God's children. We'll look at this, verses 1 through 7. I'm just going to kind of work through this passage. I'll, I'll read through it. I'll stop. I'll explain a little bit, and I'll keep going, all right? So before I dive into verse 1, what Paul is doing is he's tagging on to an explanation of what it means for us to be heirs of God, heirs of the promise that was given to Abraham, right? So uh, verse one of chapter four says this. Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, We also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. All right, so let's pause there. So last week, Jake, who did a phenomenal job bringing God's word, amen. Yeah, he deserves at least more whistles than that. Um, Jake highlighted the purposes of the law for us. And one of the purposes of the law that he, he highlighted for us is that the law served as a guardian or as a babysitter for those that were in the Old Testament. As they waited on the promise, as they believed in the promise, the law sort of served as this guardian or this babysitter until the time was fulfilled. And so salvation, what is Paul's unpacking here for us is salvation has always been a matter of faith. Abraham is our example. Abraham believed in God. He believed God's promise, and it was credited to him as righteousness, right standing with God. It's always salvation. It's always been a matter of faith, and Abraham is our example of that. So in the Old Testament, the law only served as a babysitter in matters of faith, meaning that it had no power to save. Paul's saying, if you, even if you look back into the Old Testament, the way that salvation happened was not because people kept the law, therefore they were saved. It was always a babysitter until Jesus came. And so in the middle of this, those who believe God's promise lived under the supervision of the law like everyone else, look, including slaves. All right, so here's my best way to try to explain this for you, all right? Lion King. <laughs> You all got to wake up a little bit, all right? That deserved a better, better laugh. Everybody loves Lion King, right? You, you got to be like, yes, Lion King. All right, so here's my way of explaining this, all right? Simba is the heir. All right, I got a picture for you. Simba's the heir. Zazu is the guardian, all right? What do we know about Simba? He's the heir of all of the kingdom. Everything that the light touches is his, right? But does he get it in his youth? No. Who's his guardian? Zazu. This puny little bird, right? And it's not until the time comes, the right time for Simba to come and take over, that he actually gets the kingdom. In his youth, he is under the guardian that is Zazu, right? Beautiful truth. <laughs> look, what, the, what Paul is saying is, look, this is everyone who's trusted in the promise that lived in the Old Testament. 
Everyone that was looking forward to the day that the promise would come, the law served as a babysitter. And it wasn't until Christ came that we are actually taken out of this idea of being an heir and we get to experience it. In that time, look, everyone that's under the law, it doesn't matter if you're an heir or you're a slave, all are treated the same. And Paul's saying that was everyone in the Old Testament, but everything changes when God's timing is met. So when the timing is met, God turns those heirs who are no better than slaves into sons. So this happens through two sendings that we see in verses four through six. All right, so I'm getting this from a late pastor in New York named Tim Keller. He says this, first God sent his son And Jesus makes us God's sons legally. I'm going to point that out to us in verses 4 through 5. And then second, God sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit helps us experience our sonship through his presence inside of us. That's what happens. So here's verses 4 through 5. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus makes us God's sons legally. So Paul says we receive adoption as sons through Jesus. This is legal language at the point in time of Paul. The, and this is, the idea of this is like really revolutionary, all right? So if you apply it at Paul's day and age, it would have just blown people's minds. Here's how. First, The idea of God's sons, that everyone could be God's sons, was counter-cultural, all right? So in the ancient culture, daughters could not receive a family inheritance. And what Paul is saying when he says that you are a son, he's meaning that you are now a legal heir. And this would have been revolutionary for anyone in that culture at that point in time. The idea that anyone through Christ could be made a legal heir of the promise would have turned society on its end. Like, no one could have seen the access that would have been given through the gospel because of what Jesus had done for them. Literally, it's making available to all. And then secondly, you get the idea of adoption, and this was extravagant. So in the Greco-Roman world, those that the, a wealthy, childless man could take a slave, adopt the slave, and then that would be the person that gained the family inheritance. And what Paul is saying here is that we who have trusted in Jesus, the Father, takes us who were formerly slaves, adopts us as sons, and we receive the family inheritance. This is life-altering. If you would put yourself in the shoes of a person that was a slave at this point in time, and you got the news that your owner was adopting you, and you're getting the family inheritance, it changes everything about your life. Your, the entire trajectory of where you're headed in life changes in an instant because of what the owner has benevolently done for you and making you and adopting you as a son. This is what Paul is saying happens to anyone that trusts in Christ. It's countercultural, meaning every person 
has access to this sonship. And then it's extravagant, meaning that those who do not deserve it are those that are welcomed in and that are given the family inheritance. Life-altering, extravagant, gracious, benevolent. That's what happens here. Now, the question you have to ask is like, how? Like, how does this happen? How, How could this be possible for any person that places faith in Christ, will we get the explanation in the way that Paul teases this out in verse four through five? So first he says that Jesus pays the cost for our adoption. How? He's born of a woman. It's not talking about the virgin birth here. It's talking about Jesus being fully human. Jesus left heaven, humbled himself, put on human flesh, and he was fully human. And it progresses from there because he was born under the law, meaning that Jesus was born under obligation of the law and Jesus being fully human was the only rightful human that actually walked in full obedience to God. He did everything that the law commanded, which means that he can now lay down his life as the penalty for sin because the penalty of sin is death. And the only person that could lay a life down was one that was perfect. And so Jesus, being fully human, who was born under the obligation of the law and kept it perfectly, was the only one who could lay down his life in order that other people could be made right with God. And that's exactly what he did. Jesus in our place. He was the perfect substitute. Jesus did everything for you and laid his his life down willingly so that you could get all of his benefits, all of the inheritance as the son Jesus has given to you because he took all of your sin upon himself. That's what Paul's laying out for us here. So Jesus makes us God's sons legally. The debt is wiped free because Jesus has done everything for us. The cost that was required for your sonship has been paid in Jesus. So if Jesus makes us God's sons legally, then the Holy Spirit makes us God's sons experientially, which we see through the second sending in verse six. So here's what it says. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And that if a son, then God has made you an heir. So in Jesus, we get the status, but in the Holy Spirit, we get the experience. Here's how, all right? For those who have trusted in Christ, God sends the gift of the Holy Spirit into our life. God comes to make his permanent residence inside of you. That's what he means when he says God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. It's talking about like the very core of our being. The Holy Spirit is a gift of the Father that comes to us when we place our faith in Christ. And it means that we don't have to go to a building anymore to experience the presence of God because his permanent residence has been set up in our own life. So it's experiential. Jesus goes with us. We don't have to go and migrate to a place. He lives within us. But it gets even more personal because we see what 
Paul uses in terms of the, to- the terminology that we now cry out. It says, Abba, Father. This is deeply personal language. And the, like, if you were to try to make a translation to our present day, it would be like someone saying Papa or Daddy. Like very affectionate, intimate language that Paul is using here. It signals just how deep the relationship is. There is a deep personal affection and intimacy and relationship because God has set up his permanent residence in you. So let's try to put these two together, right? So there's a story that has stuck with me. I, I heard this a long time ago. I don't remember who told it, but I know who the source is, and it's Martin Lloyd-Jones, this old English pastor And he illustrates what I believe is the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in our experience of sonship that he saw during a walk in the park back in his day. So he says that he was walking in the park, and as he was walking in the park, he saw a father and a son that were ahead of him. And he knew the status of the father and the son because the son was holding the father's hand. So they were walking through the park, holding hands, and he could identify the status of the child in relation to the father. Immediately, it's like, father, son, this is great. And he's just walking behind them, enjoying the brisk walk that he has that day. But he said something changed in a moment for him. And knowing the status of the relationship and then seeing the experience of it. Because as the father and the son were walking hand in hand, as they were walking through the park, at one point, the father stops, and he picks up the child, wraps his arms around him, and embraces him as they continue to walk. And here's what Lloyd-Jones says. It was in that moment that the status of the son became an experience because he felt the warm embrace of his father. This is what the work of the the son and the spirit do for us who have trusted in Christ Jesus. Jesus makes us legally sons. He gives us the status. People, as they look at your life, as the declaration is made, I trust in Christ with all of my life for my full debt. He gives us the status. You're made right with God. But then by the gift of the Holy Spirit that's given inside of us, God sets his permanent residence up inside of us. What we know to be true in Christ Jesus becomes personal experience through the felt warm embrace of the Holy Spirit. So here's my question for you. Are you living as a son or are you living as a slave? If you're living as a slave, the beauty of the gospel is that all that is required of you is to put your worst foot forward. There's nothing you have to do to go try to clean up your life. There's an open invitation in Jesus that all who place their faith in Christ are made sons of God. The simple ask is that you trust him. You believe in him. Everything that Christ has done in his life and work, you say, 
That is what I trust in. I bring nothing to the table. And then secondly, if you are living as a slave instead of a son when you've declared faith in Christ, the call for you is to experience your sonship. Why would you live at a distance when you've been brought near to the God who has loved you? We, we often walk through life at a distance. It's like we're teenagers. What happens instead of the park analogy with Martin Lloyd-Jones where the son's holding the hand and the father picks him up? What happens whenever you get into middle school and high school? Like you're up like 20 feet ahead and then you're like, mom, dad, stay back behind, right? Like I, I don't want to be associated with. Like oftentimes experientially, that's what it feels like. That's what our, our posture is as we walk through this life. It's like we're almost embarrassed by the one that gave us eternal life. God, you stay back there while I walk ahead of you. But I, I, when I need you, I'll, I'll fall back and I'll, I'll get the benefits. Look, what God's calling us to do is like experience your sonship. He set up permanent residence in your life. He's the God who desires relationship with you literally done everything to make relationship possible, not just the status, but the experience. So the call is like experience the embrace of your father through sonship, the reality that's been given to you. May it be the the sweet desire of your heart. So the peak of the gospel is that God radically adopts us as sons now, here's what we need to understand. There's no isolated Christian. You are not called to walk through life alone. So look, when you're brought, when you're given sonship, you not only are made sons of God, but you also get the family. And that's what we see in verses 26 through 29 of chapter three. So here's what 26 and 27 says. For through faith, You are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. So what's happening here is this is the reason for the truth of what is expounded upon in the verses before this. So all this idea of what the purpose of the law is and everything about us being made children of God through faith in Abraham, Paul's kind of bringing this to conclusion. For through faith, you're all sons of God in Christ Jesus. The reason behind this, a little bit more of the explanation that happens we see in verses 27 through 29. Verse 27, for those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. All right, so let's stop there. Baptism, what is baptism? It's a public declaration. It's a public declaration of your trust in Jesus. When someone is in the horse trough, right? The, the filled with water horse trough that's right here. They give their testimony. What are they doing? They're giving public witness that they have placed full belief in Jesus 
for the forgiveness of their sins. Right relationship with God, the experience of relationship, all is being declared through that public act of baptism. And what happens is as you are baptized, you're clothed with Christ. If, if you're baptized, then what you're saying is I identify with Christ and what has happened is I get both the status as child as well as co-heir with Jesus. Jesus has shared his status with me. As he is God's son and he's also the king, through faith, we become both God's children and co-heirs with Jesus, which means you get both the robe and the signet ring. You're clothed with Christ. You get his status. Uh, our clothes often communicate status. Think about police officer. Think about a firefighter. They have uniforms. It declares a status. Well, when we declare faith in Jesus, he puts the robe and the signet ring and it declares status. Make sense? And here's what is outrageous about this. The status is made available to everyone, like we said in verse uh, previously. So verse 28 expounds upon this. It says, there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. All right, so what's happening here is Paul is speaking of unity, not uniformity. When we come and express faith in Christ, it's not saying that all of our distinctions are removed. What is actually being said is yet through Christ, the restraint of these distinctions is eliminated. Meaning, Christ supersedes all earthly barriers when it comes to relationship. So, the gospel overcomes racial barriers, Jew or Greek. The gospel is so powerful that it tears down the dividing walls of ethnicity and unites us in Jesus Christ. In the same way, it also tears down social barriers, slave or free, poor or rich. The social barriers that are once set up by our human hearts when it comes to relationship are torn down through Jesus Christ. Gender barriers are also torn down, male and female. All of these things, all these barriers that our world sets up when it comes to relationship and community are torn down in Jesus Christ and we're united as one in him. So it doesn't mean that it eliminates our distinctions. Christ's work supersedes our distinctions and we get to now live in the midst of diversity and unity. That's what happens, and that's what Paul is communicating in verse 28. So it's revolutionary again. This is something that our world still doesn't understand. When we think and we look around this world, we can't get it right. It's only through Jesus that the unity that our hearts long for can actually be experienced. That's what Paul is saying in verse 28. And even more so, not just unity, a oneness, something we long for, but we're also made family, which we see in verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, or you're his offspring, or what's another word for that? Family. As God's family, we're called to act as family. Belonging to Christ means we get the sonship, but we also get the family. And so if we are to be family, we must learn what it is like to act as God's family. And from this text, 
I think living as God's family means at least two things. First is this, that we practice love and not indifference. We practice love and not indifference. So the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. You, you know this, you've heard this. Why is that the case? Well, if you hate something, you care deeply about it, don't you? It's just impassioned, it's inflamed. When you're indifferent, you truly don't care. So here's, I have this, I've had this relationship. It was with my black Honda Accord. <laughs> so here's what happened. My black Honda Accord in a house that we previously lived in was parked in the front of our house. I was sitting on the couch watching a, a TV show. Someone was, uh, that lived across the street backed out of their driveway, hit my car, and drove off. You know what I did? Nothing. I hated that car. Like I, I had so much indifference towards that car. I didn't care if it, was, if it looked good. It was already sun-beaten. The leather inside was torn. The transmission was going out. I, I did not care about this car. I was indifferent. But within the family of God, that's not how we practice being family in the, context, on, in the context of belonging and trusting in Christ. What he gives us as the new family norm is that of love, which we see in John 13, 34. He says, I give you a new command. Love one another. Now listen to this. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Just, before, or just after this, he says, it's by this love that everyone will know that we belong to Christ. The new norm within the family of God is the practice, the intentional practice of love towards one another. And Jesus says this is a new command, not because it's something that was never spoken of before, but he gives a new standard by which we practice that love. And what's the standard? Just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. How did Christ love you? With tremendous sacrifice. Laying his life down for you. Jesus saw our great need and he sacrificed his life in order to meet that great need. And so look, the new practice within the life of the church is that we practice love to the extent that Jesus practiced sacrificial love for us. That's the urgency with which we step into one another's life. That's the depths to which we practice sacrifice for those that are seated in these seats. The way that Jesus has loved us, he says, look, the world will know you. The world will know that you belong to me by the way that you practice such love in the context of the family, local expression of the family of God as you live and walk with those that call on my name. The second expression of this is that it's equality and not partiality. So it's only through Jesus that the earthly barriers to community can be torn down, look, and stay down. The only way that we can actually experience the unity and oneness that Jesus is talking about is through the gospel, and it's continued through the gospel. 
We've said this at, at the, um, in Galatians chapter 2, at the beginning of Galatians chapter 2, that what brings us together is what keeps us together. So look, the world can bring a diverse group together for an event. We see this happen all the time. Like we see events that take place and people point out that diversity that happens at those events. But look, it's only the gospel that brings together a diverse group and then makes them family. That's the only thing that can actually keep a diverse group of people together. And so if we want to continue to practice what Paul's already laid before us, that we keep the main thing, the main thing, or what brings us together is what keeps us together. That's Christ. Like that's what we do. We practice what this passage is teaching us, that it's Christ that keeps us one. And so look, we're family, not because of the origins of our ethnicity, but because of the origins of our faith. It's not because of where we came from. This is like what all of Galatians is about, right? Like Paul's trying to lay out the argument, the sufficiency of the work of Christ on your behalf. It's not by becoming ethnically Jewish through circumcision or keeping the law. It's everything that Christ has done for you, and it's only through faith. That's all that Galatians is teaching you. So Paul's like coming again and saying, look, it's not Jew or Greek. The way that you practice the family of God is that you practice equality and not partiality, meaning all the racial barriers that have been set up by this world have been torn down through Jesus, and so we continue to practice that as God's family. We practice relationship by reaching over cultural barriers through keeping our gaze set on the gospel, what Jesus has done in our behalf. All the work that has been made towards racial reconciliation that focuses on ethnicity and then glances at the gospel, it's it's no wonder that it never seems to work. What happens is that the church focuses and sets its gaze on the gospel and it's through the work of Jesus that is what brings such a diverse group together and keeps it together. We're a family in spite of our social status, not because of it. This is James 2.5. God chose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. So when the world looks at social status or when it looks at professional, these are the things that make up social groups most of the time. People that are in the same life phase. People are not within the family of God. The gospel tears that down. So what should be the normal practice in the life of the church when we keep the gospel as the central focus for us is that you see people from professional world that are making relationships with people that are just maybe even getting their beginnings or people that are coming from nothing. You see the gospel reach across our social norms and bring people that never would have been friends together together because of their faith in Christ. And then look, our family is not a boy or girls club. We don't objectify each other and then we don't see each other as threats to our marital relationships or our dating relationships. Here's another way of trying to like say this, right? So the way that we practice this is we pursue friendship in Christ with the wisdom of Christ. So in our hangouts, you're not, you don't have guys and girls tables. <laughs> like you can have friendships here. Like that, 
spans across our gender differences. Like, your brothers and sisters in Christ, like, practice it. You can be friends without objectifying each other or seeing each other as a threat. Now, this does require wisdom. So at Hangouts, yeah, there's no men's and women's tables, but look, that also means that I'm not going to be uh, another lady's uh, squat spot at the gym, right? Like, that, that, that's dumb, right? Like, I'll let that sit with you for a little bit, right? Like, there's a wisdom that we do in the way that we practice this. But look, the gospel spans all of this. What keeps a diverse group together is the work that Jesus has done. It's through faith in Christ. Now, um, I just want to take some time to like encourage you for a second. Because I, I, as I think about us in our infancy as a church, like we're, we just celebrated two years um, last Sunday, um, I kind of feel like teaching my boys to ride a bike as they're getting off their training wheels. And as you let the seat go, like, and they're, they're going and they're headed in the right trajectory, you're like, you're just yelling, keep going. Like, keep going. Like, you're doing great. Keep going. Keep going down the street to watch the car, but keep going, right? Well, in a lot of ways, like, I see us headed in the right direction. Here, like, here's what I mean, right? So, um, I, we're not perfect here. Like, we haven't arrived here, but, like, it's keep going because I, I think we're going in the right direction. I, I see, like, some ethnic diversity, especially within the last couple of months that have happened in the life of our church. Like, I see multiple different ethnicities that are present here. Um, I see social diversity where you have doctors or professionals that are hanging out with college students. I see gender, gender diversity where at our fall hangout, I saw at tables, it's not guys and girls tables, but I see men and women sitting down at tables, sharing life with one another, like catching up, laughing together, enjoying one another. Like that's beautiful. It's beautiful. And so like whenever I think about us in times of like passing of the peace, what do I have to do? Like when I, I say this to you jokingly sometimes, but I mean it. Like, the, the worst part of my job is having to interrupt the conversations that are happening. Like, I love, like, seeing you get out of your seats and go find somebody that you don't know, and you're talking, and you're learning their life, you're learning their name, you're learning their story, like, you genuinely care, like, you're stepping in. I love that, at, I, like, I see um, after the service, there's, like, a lingering effect that happens here. Like, any, we've had to start a rotation of who on staff is staying after the service to close down the whole entire church because y'all just stay here. <laughs> like, we have to rotate so we can, like, get home, and it's not like the same person that's here, like, an hour after the service. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. The community and the sense of family that in a lot of ways are being developed here because you're intentionally stepping in to one another's life is beautiful. Like, keep going. Keep going in this. We're not perfect at it. We need to keep watch for the cars that are ahead of us. But we're headed in a good trajectory. Like, keep going. It's a beautiful thing that God's doing here. So keep stepping into it. Keep practicing it. Keep watching for someone that you can befriend, make feel welcome here, invite over to your house. Like, it's a good trajectory. Keep going. I'm encouraged. So as I, as I 
think about like trying to bring all of this together, like I feel like there's two invitations for us. In light of our sonship, in light of the family of God, I believe there's two invitations for us. First one we've said, but I want to tease it out a little bit more, is enjoy your sonship. Enjoy your sonship. Here's Galatians 4, 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Look, to live in the warm and loving of God the Father as his chosen sons, I want that to be the delight of your heart. I want it to be the thing whenever you wake up that your heart yearns for, that it burns for, and that you practice it. So look, it means that we don't have to live in fear. Oftentimes, like, we look at our life and we think about what it means in terms of our relational status, and we wonder if God has forgotten us. But the Holy Spirit has set up his permanent residence in your hearts. He's too close for you to be forgotten. Or, we live at a distance and we're looking back and it's like, God, stay back there. But here's the reality that we need to wrestle with. Look, the cost that Jesus paid was too great. Whenever we look and we try to live at that distance, what does that communicate to what Christ has done for us relationally in laying down his life? That was good and great, Jesus. I'm going to keep doing my thing up here, and whenever I need you, I'll reach back there. Look, that's not the type of relationship that Jesus laid down his life for you. I'm not saying that in a way to like make you feel bad. I'm trying to communicate the reality. Like, Jesus is Savior, but look, he's also your Lord. He's the one that calls the shots in your life. So I don't care what your affections say in terms of, like, whether I'm going to draw near to Jesus, like Jesus is Lord of your feelings. And when he calls us to draw near, like, we listen to our Lord and we do what he commands. But look, Compared to human authority, Jesus' authority always is for your good. So when he calls you to draw near and it's a command, it's always for your personal enjoyment. So the second one, first, enjoy your sonship. Like, man, don't have to live in fear. Don't live in distance. Enjoy your sonship. Second one, practice your family love publicly. What, here's what I mean by that. Do what you do in here and then do it out there. You know what I mean? Like what we do in here is a beautiful thing and it's really like I, I love the trajectory that we're headed on. What I want you to do is I want you to do what you do in here but do it out there. Because John 13, 35 says, but this, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You need to take your love to the streets. <laughs> the community that's practiced in here needs to be practiced in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, in your social gatherings. 
because by our love for one another, the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples. So here's, I, this, this does happen, right? So again, let me encourage you before I like give you some questions to consider. Um, I hear often like people that are going over to one another's houses for meals. Beautiful, love it. Uh, just this yesterday, um, we had a family that came to our two sons' soccer games just because they loved us. Um, and they were sharing stories about how the night before they went to the botanical gardens with another family in the life of our church just because they love one another. Like, that's what we want. But we want it to be the continual regular practice of the life of our church and that we think about others that we can include and incorporate in. That's what I'm talking about. Do what you're doing here but do it out there as you are looking for people you don't know, people that look different from you, people that may not know Jesus, people that may not feel known by this world. What you do in here, you take it public and you do it out there with one another as you engage the world where God has placed you. So here's some questions to help you think about how you do that. As you think about like your home and your dinners and invitations into your home, you need to think about who have we not invited over yet? It may not mean that it's in place of the other person that you enjoy, but maybe you're including somebody else in so that the world may see the, the difference. The, what brings these people together is not because of their social status, not because of their ethnicity, it's not because of their gender. It's because God brings people that never would have been friends together together because of their oneness in him. So who do I need to invite over into my house for dinner? How can I help others see our shared community? Um, a couple of our, our community groups are trying to practice this. I want this to be more of a regular practice. They're thinking through how do we throw a block party this fall where we're taking our, what's happening in here and taking it out there and inviting more people in to experience the goodness and the richness of fellowship with Christ. Um, we're trying to do like chili cook-off and watching the playoff game for St. Louis City like, and inviting our neighbors in, but in the context of our community because we want people to know that we love one another and that we belong to Jesus. Or who else can I invite to the event when you go to the next thing that happens at Forest Park, like who am I taking with me? Or as we go together as a group, who are we engaging and inviting in? Who's standing off that is alone, that doesn't seem to have fellowship that we're engaging and inviting in? That's what we do in here, and we want to take it out there. See what I'm saying? Because by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. The height of the gospel is that we have, we are sons of the living God. It's the climax, personal, intimate, affectionate relationship. And you get his family. A beautiful family that only God could bring together through faith in Christ. So let's enjoy it. Let's take it public and let's live our faith in Christ together. Let's pray.